1: Of the IDIQs we looked at, only 10% of them funded task orders to 90% or greater of their shared ceilings, right? So it is rare for the government to fund all the way up to a shared ceiling. So when thinking about that, right, when you win an IDIQ, you sort of combine all these data points, maybe the uh, potential... Uh, funding of the potential dollars to you as a single prime looks a little bit different sort of and it looks a little bit different over time as well so if you didn't win the first contract for the first task order or if you aren't part of the top three how does that change your strategy how does it you know impact uh, your investment if you will into
0: that IDIQ? welcome back to the government huddle podcast guys i'm your host brian Chittister. If you're a company looking to efficiently market your goods and services, increase sales, and receive targeted sales opportunities, or if you're a government agency looking to simplify your procurement process, increase vendor competition, then today's episode is definitely for you. Selling to the government at all levels can seem like a daunting task for any government contractor, but focusing on several key tips and strategies can bring some structure to your public sector efforts and help your organization excel in the government marketplace building your sales and marketing practice or even refining the business unit that you've worked so hard to establish is one of the greatest challenges your company may face but before you can capitalize on the opportunities that exist for your company you should really have a go-to-market strategy in place and today we're going to discuss some ways that you can build that by leveraging data and take a look at some trends that might really surprise not only the contractor community, but also government agencies. And my guest today brings a wealth of knowledge in this area. Nate Nash is a Senior Vice President at GovExec and the founder of GovTribe. He specializes in government contracting data and helps organizations leverage this information to compete and, most importantly, win in this space. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today, bud. Hey, thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Before we jump into the conversation around government contracting trends, etc., I, I wanted you to take us back a little bit to the beginning of GovTribe, because it's actually a kind of a funny story. You started as a group of three, leaving your job, working in a basement, all because you knew you needed something for your jobs that... You didn't have, but knew you could make. Take us back to the beginning of all this, because I think it's really fascinating. Kind of, whenever I think of kind of entrepreneurs and jumping into their heads and kind of what gets them going, I think this this is a perfect example of that. So why don't you take us back there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Late 2012, uh, effectively, there were three of us. We were working at uh, Deloitte Consulting, doing government contracting, both civilian and defense agencies, and um, you know, sort of moving up in our career and had targets that we had to hit and generating business and being able to sort of win and, and manage and execute government contracts. And, uh, you know, we just sort of felt like the tools that we had at our disposal <clears throat> and that were available in the market um, were sort of primed for disruption, They're just a little creaky, hadn't been um, updated in a while and just, you know, were are expensive and I think sort of geared towards... Um, buyers as opposed to the actual users of the software. So yeah, we put our heads together and it's, it's generous of you to say that we knew we could build it. Uh, we had a pretty good idea uh, that, we, that we could um, sort of acquire the skills along the way to, uh, to be able to, to build the platform. But we started putting together the platform with just a few kind of guiding principles in mind. Is one, uh, we wanted to have a, a business model that really focused on the actual users of the software. Right. So we're not building software that gets purchased by a CIO or something like that, and then, you know, moved down or um, instructed to be used uh, to the folks that have to actually use it. We really wanted to focus on that. We really wanted to go heavy on data and sort of modern approaches to dealing with data. Uh, we didn't think the analyst model made a bunch of sense, uh, especially for a young startup trying to get going. We thought there were a lot of cool things that could get done with the data um, to really help you know, our former selves, if you will. Um, and we wanted to take almost a, a consumer technology-based approach to it. And it's sort of evident in the way that um, we sell our software. It's, you know, you, you get a free trial, you put down a credit card, and you're good to go. We had these these three sort of, you know, guiding principles that we really wanted to um to build against. And we sort of thought about, you know, what did we need in our, our former jobs? when we were trying to um, trying to find work, trying to win work and execute that work um, and started building from there. And you sort of fast forward, um, the platform really came out 2015 or so, uh, was when we had our first big launch. It's been updated a few times. Um, and it's been really interesting to see the reception in the market. Um, you know, we started out coming at this from the perspective of kind of a large, consultant uh, role, if you will, our our work at Deloitte Consulting, but getting exposed to just the myriad of types of folks that work in government contracting, right? Everybody from environmental remediation services to bakeries to large system integrators. Um, And it's been a really fascinating journey to to have those people interact with our software and get perspective from them about, you know, how they do business um, and sort of move outside of you know, our, our sort of traditional understanding of maybe inside the beltway, lots of IT, lots of um, sort of big companies, big defense contractors. Um, and we continue to kind of build the platform with that that theory in mind of we're building for users no matter what, um, what industry you're in. Uh, we hope to delight people with, you know, software and capabilities that are um, maybe a little less business or corporate, and, uh, but still helpful uh,
0: in um,
1: making sure that you can uh, do your job.
0: So that's fascinating that you were, obviously, you understood the public sector. I would imagine as you're going in and doing this, you're seeing that those kind of guardrails around public sector are, are maybe even larger than you, than you imagine When you're engaging with some of those people that we can call, maybe you're not typical government contractors, as we always Think of them, but yeah. as you're engaging with them, were there any surprises that you found that that you incorporated back into your platform?
1: Yeah, you know, and it's it's both I think a blessing and a curse to have such a very um, wide and diverse set of users in terms of industries. Sure, I mean, people think you know they say government contractors, right? What comes to mind are, are typically you know, the usual suspects, the folks around the Beltway, large defense contractors. And I think what was surprising to us is like there is no such thing as a government contractor. Uh, each industry, the government buys everything, right? So each industry has their own sort of take on, you know, what it means to contract with the government, how they do it, how the organizations are structured uh, to uh, to go after work. And when we when we go about building features, you know, our initial instinct was to sort of build stuff for the deloitte if you will of the world right and for what we knew um but it's become i think really important to us and critical that when we build stuff and create capability um it is something that can be used by folks at deloitte or wherever as well as you know a small janitorial services firm uh it that happens to you know do one or two contracts a year so that's it's a challenge um, because you you have to make features that are sort of applicable to everyone But the surprise of sort of learning just the, you know, the vast differences between kind of how people who are all
0: government contractors work and how they go after business. So 2015, you guys release your first kind of iteration Mm -hmm. of the platform. Let's fast forward uh, a few years into the future, into 2021, and you guys are acquired by GovExec. And bigger company obviously comes with some of the uh, some of the the niceties of working for a bigger company some of the resources and I know one of the things you've talked about is incorporating buyer intent into the platform is that something you've been able to do or what has that change really looked like for you guys since last fall
1: Yeah absolutely it's been great we've been really pleased um, uh, having uh, or joining pleased about joining the GovExec family um, you know, one of the things that GovTribe, and it goes back to kind of our ethos when we started building this thing, is we always really wanted, you know, kind of that network effect, that idea of we wanted lots of actual users on the platform um, because it gives really good insight into what the market uh, is interested in, what the market is doing, um, and connecting with GovExec uh, with their vast um, sort of media properties and readership from the government itself it's kind of the other side of that coin, right? You're talking about buyer intent data. So we thought it was a really cool uh, opportunity <clears throat> to be able to sort of mash up that data that we have about you know, what our contractors across the board interested in looking at what are the trends there, what's the data telling us, uh, as well as what's going on, what content is being consumed um, from the buyer side. So we've all along, I think, tried really hard to incorporate just with our own data, um, you know what what the the uh, sort of large group of folks that use the platform are telling us about the market, and we are currently in development to bring in more and more of that intent data that's coming from some of our sister companies and the media properties. But what we think it's it's going to do is it's going to be a really interesting kind of you know I, I hate to use the, the, the cliche sort of ahead of the RFP, but really that that's what we're driving towards, right? Um, when you have large swaths of both sides of the market, right? The buyers and the sellers uh, operating on um, a single data platform, you can start to do some really interesting things um, with helping people, I think, compete better, understand their market better, maybe be more targeted in some of their activities. So yeah, it's something we're actively working on. And one of the reasons we were really excited uh, to be acquired and um, along with those uh, additional resources that comes with a larger company, like we have an HR department now, which is great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you have all this data at your fingertips. You're obviously following the market. You've been following the market for for well over a decade now. I'm just going to ask the question because I'm selfishly want to know a lot of this stuff. What are some of the largest... Government contracting trends that we should be focused on right now.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I was thinking about this, um, and to some degree, I'm going to caveat this with my earlier response about you know learning that there are, in fact, there is no such thing as a government contractor, and I think that also sort of drives some of these trends. These trends are pretty macro, um, but but I think it's still it's good to be aware of them and understand them. Um, They may not necessarily affect you if. You're in the business of, you know, um, selling uh, hot dogs, if you will, but uh, they they may affect you if you're one of the more traditional um, IT uh, firms or one of the big defense firms. So, you know, this is a trend that has been going on for a while and it it continues to, I think, evolve. And it's the government experimenting with, you know, sort of alternative mechanisms uh, for engaging the private sector, right? You see a lot of focus and more and more, I think, accelerating focus around being able to tap into innovative new companies, maybe non-traditional government contractors. There's lots of programs. The DOD has really been, and its various sub-agencies, has really been out front on this. Um, but you know, these the I think they're always trying to experiment and always or continuing to try to experiment with new ways to engage um, the federal contractor landscape, if you will. Um, and one of the interesting ones that's, um, it's been around for a little while, but it's starting to pick up more steam. And there's a recent... IDIQ that just had an on-ramp for some new contractors um, that's indicative of this is the use of challenges uh, and sort of prize competitions. There's a, an IDIQ that NASA has um, called NOISE2. I believe that's how they pronounce the acronym. It's the NASA Open Innovation Services. And what it is, is it, it's, a, it's a traditional IDIQ awarded to uh, 32 primes. About 13 new ones got on ramped. Um, I think, a month ago or so. And... The scope is they wanted to engage with government, engage with vendors, private sector companies um, who could solicit sort of crowd-based solutions through whether they be challenges or prize competitions, um, crowd-based freelance projects, these micro-task projects, and other crowd-based methods. And it's a really interesting approach where the government is contracting with firms that can then sort of operate these Uh, these challenges on their behalf. And I think it's just an indicative, another example of the government continuing to try and, um, you know, attempt to engage the private sector community uh, in various different ways. And on this vehicle, there are, you know, what we potentially consider some traditional government contractors like Guidehouse, Accenture, things like that. Um, But also some firms that, you know, may not be household names as well. Um, that are doing a lot of work for NASA uh, on this uh, on this front. So this, you know, this usage of alternative vehicles, and I think continuing to always stay abreast of what is the latest approach potentially? um because if you're you know, maybe interested in government contracting, the um you know the slog, if you will, of trying to get on a GSA schedule or trying to win a prime award on your own. Um, there are more and more opportunities, I think, out there for people to engage with the federal government in you know, maybe a less traditional fashion. Get your foot in the door, get some qualms, and then be able to um, maybe justify the investment to go after something like a schedule or go after competing on your own. So, I would say that's probably from the kind of the government side of it. Another thing that I've seen we've seen recently, and it's you know not just GovTribe that's doing this. There are other platforms as well, but. The, the usage of data, market intelligence, and really sort of sophisticated and advanced approaches to understanding the government contracting market have been made more available to smaller companies, right? Sort of the the very least, the price of getting access to market intelligence, good market intelligence, um, has come down. So it's been an interesting trend for us to see you know, some of our customers that are smaller firms very effectively using data on platforms like ours to inform their go-to-market approach to be targeted to be strategic uh and think i think a little bit more have a little bit more data uh, backing some of the decision-making processes and so you know what that what that sort of has driven is um, an increase in competition in the market especially for more established players right there are more and more new entrants if you will coming into uh their spaces and doing it in potentially a more cost-effective way because the tools and the data are now available and have been democratized, if you will, down to um, companies that traditionally may not have been able to uh, afford access to data like this before. So those are the two big things that I think, um, I'm sure there are other large trends, uh, but those are two that are, that have been really interesting for me to watch. Um, with the second being, you know, sort of my day-to-day life is watching these these um, new and innovative and smaller firms really get going in the government contracting space
0: how much did the pandemic and the government's flexibility or agility and willingness to kind of onboard new technologies as quickly as they did i mean purely based on on need how much did that really impact their the the non-traditional vehicle use and kind of what the proliferation of that looked like because i would imagine (laughs) that that having that agility uh, in setting up these these contracts to be able to onboard these technologies would be something that hopefully they would like to continue to leverage moving forward. Maybe not at the pace at which we saw during the pandemic because that, that I'm not sure anybody could really keep up with that, but is that something that you feel like the pandemic catalyzed and might be here to stay?
1: Yeah, um, whether it's here to stay, I, I'm not sure. I felt like there were some very pandemic sort of specific types of vehicles that went out, types of approaches. I mean, there's still, at the end of the day, kind of the mechanisms are still IDIQs or there's still BPAs or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. But the scope of sort of what they're looking at, you know, one that just happens to come to mind is in um, the uh, the GSA um, uh, awarded an IDIQ for uh, flexible coworking services, right? And it's, you know, they're awarding contracts uh, to companies like WeWork, for example. And... You know, that, that came out, it got awarded in eh, sort of late 21, mid uh, 2021. Um, and again, it's an IDIQ at the end of the day, right? So very traditional contracting structure. But the focus of it and the companies that ended up winning it and getting on it, um, I felt, you know, had some some flavor of the government is rethinking the way um, they're going about working and that's rethinking uh, the way they may potentially engage with contractors, Another one that came out, I believe it was from the GSA, is they, um, they issued a ride-sharing uh, IDIQ as well. So, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, um, which is a really, you know, again, an IDIQ, but the, the content, if you will, is sort of uh, modern, I guess, you know, sort of innovative, if you will, what it is they're thinking about engaging the private
0: sector for. Maybe non-traditional. Non-traditional. Yeah. yeah. yeah th- we, a- think- we actually had, we had Dan Matthews on the show um, who heads up federal sales over at WeWork and he was the the former GSA commissioner, building commissioner. And we were talking about that specific, that specific IDIQ. And I think that's a really good example of kind of what you're talking about. Those non-traditional type of contracts that government is, I mean, and kudos to the government, right? They're taking a look at what's out there to be able to understand what the need is, which actually, I mean, that th- that would be a really good question. What other things are you seeing? What other ways or techniques are you seeing government do their due diligence, maybe beyond just a typical RFI, or just to establish need? Because obviously, government knew they had a challenge, perhaps with the 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 building situation that they have, and kind of what the the future of work was going to look like. How do they how do they go and address the information that they need to? to get some outcomes on those challenges?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a good question. You know, in the case of the Flexible Coworking Services, IDIQ, um, they did kind of run it through the traditional you know, RFIs or pre-solicitation, if you will, uh, into a full solicitation. Um, but we do have um, some customers that use our data to uh, tack on or sort of uh, amend um, tech scouting data that they do uh, that's sort of outside the traditional world of government contracting, and those companies, their their customers are the government. So we start to see the government sort of again, almost like the challenge IDIQ or the noise two IDIQ is engaging the private sector to further engage, you know, non traditional government contractors and having vehicles and mechanisms mechanisms in place to do that sort of thing. Um, start to see a lot of that. I mean, the, again, the the DoD is probably in, in their sub-agencies um, has been at the forefront in, in trying to engage non-traditional government contractors. I do think, you know, when he, talking a little bit about the pandemic, you know, we saw a, a really big increase in people interested in uh, government contracting, becoming government contractors or expanding existing uh, federal contracted work. During the pandemic, just purely because of the the state of the economy, right? So well, that's some funny the-
0: you say that. That's when you were talking about your second trend about increased competition and and leveraging some of this data to be more competitive. That's exactly what I was thinking. Was that I would imagine there's a bunch of companies that saw the pandemic as an opportunity, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, you know, an opportunity, you know, to some degree making making lemonade if they're you know if they say they had a split business between public sector work and private sector work and the private sector side was drying up, focusing on the, uh, the public sector stuff that they were doing makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, you know, I did, uh, we did an analysis and I think it was sometime late last year where we looked at the, um, the number of new registrants, uh, people registering to be government contractors and sam.gov, as well as the number of first time awardees, uh, and sort of what that looked like over time. Um, and it's rapidly increasing, uh, especially during the pandemic, right? We'll see if that trend halts uh, <clears throat> uh, through the remainder of this year and the next few years. But you really did see a lot of people signing up, if you will. I mean, the basics of registering in SAM, right? And getting your CAGE code and your UEI and all that. And then engaging with the government. But you also saw first-time awardees, the number of people winning their first prime government contract uh, increasing as well. So you know, is it supply side or demand side there? I'm not entirely sure, but it's there. uh, And it's something I think that people need to
0: be aware of. So you've been touching on IDIQs um, a fair amount. I know you you had done some recent analysis on IDIQ contracts and have discovered some interesting trends, even beyond kind of what you were just talking about. You want to tell us a little bit about some of this research you found?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we took a look at about 400 or so uh, multi-awards and multiple prime IDIQs across various industries, agencies and set of sizes our sample set. Every IDIQ that we looked at had to have at least four primes on it and a shared ceiling greater than 40 million bucks. And what we wanted to sort of understand is, you know, we wanted to help give, or we wanted to give people some, some intel, if you will, if, you, if you're on an IDIQ about kind of what typically happens On an IDIQ with respect to funding. So, one of the things that we looked at was, you know, sort of who gets the most funding, who gets the most obligations on an IDIQ. And on average, um, so the three primes that received the most funding on an IDIQ, so think of it as like the top three primes in terms of dollars, ended up receiving 82% of all funding for that IDIQ. So, one of the things this, this, what does this mean is funding on an IDIQ is almost never equally split amongst the primes. So if you're on an IDIQ, uh, and there's 10 total primes, right, on average, 82% of the funding will just go to three of them. So it's, you know, when you think about getting on an IDIQ, investing in sort of the process of um, pursuing an IDIQ, you look at that $100 million shared ceiling, um, the idea if there's, you know, five primes that you're going to end up with $20 million, may in fact not be the case. Um, Also, if you're looking as subbing to or finding partners that hold existing IDIQs, um, it may behoove you to look at who the top three are, right? Because there's a greater chance for downstream funding of joining a team as a subcontractor if you're engaging with one of the top three primes on a given vehicle, as opposed to just maybe whoever you have a relationship with. Uh, another thing that we looked at is just the number of task orders, the number of delivery orders um, on the IDIQ, and sort of how that was broken down. So again, kind of on average, the three primes that won the most task orders on an IDIQ, the most number of contracts, ended up receiving about seventy-two percent of all the task orders. So not only is the funding never equally spit, split amongst the primes, the actual number of uh, contracts awarded is not equally sp- never almost never equally split. Split. So, if a vehicle issues, you know, 100 task orders, 72 of them are going to go to three contractors or three primes uh, on a given idea queue. And then uh, finally, one of the things we looked at was, um, you know, what is the impact of winning the first task order
0: on an idea queue? I was, I was, so was just gate, thinking, I was just thinking that it's funny you said that. Like what, like making that first established win? How much does yeah. that really influence the rest of it? So uh, on average, the prime that wins the first task order on an IDIQ
1: will go on to receive 25% of the total funding for an IDIQ. So if you're on a contract, you're on an IDIQ that has more than four primes, winning that first task order provides an outsized advantage in sort of downstream funding, right? Um, But it also, there's, there's an inverse to that to think about if you don't win the first task order, do you need to potentially double down on how you're engaging with the government um, to sort of make sure you're you're in the game for subsequent task orders? Um, what does that mean for marketing? What does it mean for business development what does it mean for engaging with the CEOs and the program folks that are uh, buying against this particular IDIQ? uh and then finally the thing we looked at <clears throat> one of my one of my favorite things is um shared ceilings you know i I've been in business development meetings where Winning a hundred million dollar IDIQ or a ten million dollar shared ceiling IDIQ, it's sort of thought of as a hundred million dollar win or a ten million dollar win, and we are we know already from the data that there's it's very unlikely that one prime is going to win the majority or one prime is going to win all of it. But I was curious as to, you know, on average, how often is the government funding up to the ceilings uh, for these IDIQs? And really, of the IDIQs we looked at, only 10% of them funded task orders to 90% or greater of their shared ceilings, right? So it is rare for the government to fund all the way up to a shared ceiling. So when thinking about that, right, when you win an IDIQ, you sort of combine all these data points, um, maybe the uh, potential uh, funding or the potential dollars to you as a single prime looks a little bit different right? Sort of, and it looks a little bit different over time as well. So if you didn't win the first contract or the first task order, or if you aren't part of the top three, how does that change your strategy? How does it, um, you know, impact uh, your investment, if you will, into that IDIQ?
0: So let's talk about that. Uh, you've you've obviously been working with companies large and small on how they can establish themselves within contracts like that and others. What can marketers do leveraging this data to be more strategic and opportunistic, and not just marketers, but sales, business development, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this, this sort of touches on my point earlier about how sort of new, maybe non-traditional companies are using data to better inform their, their go-to-market strategies. You know, and I think in the, in the example, when we talk about IDIQs, having a very targeted and focused approach um, Thinking about a specific income or trying to offset a potential challenge uh, is something that I think both sort of the marketing side, the BD folks, the actual operators that are executing against these contracts, you know, using that um, to focus your efforts, if you will, and to think about, you know, maybe when we're going to go and do a campaign, maybe it should be hyper focused on specifically ghosting the top three. winners on an IDIQ that we happen to be happen to be on, because we're trying to get into that top three. Maybe it's focused on making sure the audience for our marketing campaigns, um, is very, very small, right? Is it just the CEOs and the program people for the specific IDIQ? Because I think moving the needle on some of these smaller efforts, uh, or maybe these smaller vehicles, if you will, as opposed to kind of larger, maybe less focused efforts. Um, uh, can be helpful and we've seen companies do that effectively um but using data if you will and connecting i think with you know what what are the bd folks doing um and what are the what are the delivery folks doing on the ground um and really looking at some of these more specific opportunities as opposed to just kind of larger awareness campaigns
0: so one more question i have for you before uh, i want to give you some some time to leave any final thoughts you have but a lot of what platforms like yours, I think, try to do is allow sales, marketing, BD to get ahead of the RFP, like you said, get in front of it, try to understand, especially leveraging that buyer intent you're lo- that you're looking to build, but get ahead of it and try to influence and mold that RFP. But what can companies do when they're past that gate? When you see like uh, last year when the the big infrastructure bill dropped and companies were trying to take advantage of these opportunities as quickly as possible. Uh, Some were obviously successful, some weren't, but when something like this does come out and you've missed that window to perhaps influence it. And obviously this is a bigger one, right? But we can talk about any other contract. What is the best approach that a company can take to try to, to drive up their, their level of success?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, In the case of the infrastructure bill um, it's definitely in my opinion, it seems like much more of a state play to me than a federal play. Um, but you know when something big like that drops, um, often there's some <clears throat> some desire for speed, right to get sort of the funding out the door to get these programs moving. And to me, that that seems like you know if speed is one of the the factors, um, there will be a lot of leveraging of existing contracts. IDIQs, schedules, maybe just existing definitive contracts, whatever it may be. So, if if that's the case, um, I think it's a pure sub/slash partnering play, right? So, thinking about, all right, who holds these contracts now? Who who right now is Army Corps' number one, you know, heavy construction and civil engineering contractor? Or number two, number three. Do we have relationships with them? Can we provide value? How can we engage with those companies? So that when they start getting funding against existing vehicles, existing contracts, whatever it may be, that they're thinking about us from a sub perspective, a partnering perspective, and getting involved in that game, uh, I think that's that's a <clears throat> that's a good strategy for being able to um, reap the benefits of you know things that maybe you've quote unquote missed, if you will, uh, especially in these long, longer running vehicles like like IDIQs. You know, there, some of these are five, seven-year contracts. You know, the the state of affairs can change over time. Getting on a team, being able to pick up some work, especially if these vehicles are being used to support sort of larger budget or funding initiatives, I think that's the best bet. Is instead of thinking about connecting or going direct to the government, which is you know still important, it's almost you need to direct and go uh, connect and go direct to uh, the primes that already hold these particular contracts.
0: I think that's really good advice and I think another thing it kind of speaks to potential proactivity getting ahead of even when some of these things might drop well in advance so you've established these relationships so you're not just showing up kind of with your handout saying hey I know you have this contract let's establish a relationship we know we can help you you've already been doing business with them or you've already been having conversations and some type of go-to-market motion perhaps and it it's much more established um and then proactively, you you position yourself for success, and, and in a situation that could seem chaotic, it it really it really becomes less so.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And you know the the data um, is there to be able to understand if your target market is a certain type of work in a certain type of agencies. It is you know three clicks away. To figure out, okay, who are the top 10 contractors in that space? Who do I need to be making sure I have relationships with now? And they may not be, again, household names, right? They may not be folks that you sort of traditionally think of as, you know, beltway contractors and things like that. But getting getting ahead of that and establishing those relationships for a sub opportunity or potentially, if you happen to have a set aside designation, setting yourself up to be a prime with them as the sub partnering opportunity in the future.
0: This is a, So something I talk about too, this is a really good opportunity for marketers to be more strategic because as you're building out campaigns on a regular cadence, you can be identifying some of these partners that might be white space currently that could support that campaign. And over a period of time, if you started to not only identify, but connect with these partners, that's another way to also proactively engage and provide a lot of value to the sales and BD teams, in my opinion. So just yeah. something to think about as you're building out those campaign strategies. Um, Nate, so much that we unpacked here, lots of really good nuggets and advice within this. So really appreciate it. Any final thoughts you want to leave for our listeners today?
1: Yeah. I mean, we've, we touched on this throughout the the session today, but you know, the idea of thinking about data as a strategic enabler, right? Using tools, whatever it may be using the data to inform target and, uh, craft your go to market strategy, uh, with the federal government, um, the data is getting better and better and better, and the tools and platforms out there to help to allow you to access that data and make decisions with it, are also becoming more and more uh, democratized, if you will, when it comes to things like price and usability. So you know, it's not just the realm of tracking an RFP anymore. It's looking at spending trends, looking at the top contractors in a particular area and being able to use that data to uh, inform your strategy. That, that, I think, is the key,
0: if you will, to um, to really being effective and continuing to grow uh, in this space. I, I couldn't agree more. Good way to finish. Nate, thanks again for being on and sharing some of these insights with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you listen to yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at A B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.